folks. Welcome again to the Trauma Podcast. Today is a kind of a special episode, but we're going to focus a little less on the, perhaps the science of medicine, and what I envision is an equally important degree of art of medicine, how we work together in trauma care. And really, no two specialties perhaps work as closely together in this regard as emergency medicine and trauma surgery when it comes to attempts to optimize care of victims of injury. Now that relationship admittedly differs by country, institution, academic versus private, and even individual to individual. But there's some stereotypes that exist on both sides of that fence. And so today to help examine those, I've asked my friend Scott Weingart, who uh, anybody who is a podcast consumer in the emergency medicine world certainly knows as the EM critical care physician and editor of the EM crit blog and podcast. And also my friend and, uh, I guess, trainee, Bill Teeter, uh, who has an interesting background uh, as a former surgery resident who converted to emergency medicine physician and is now currently an EM critical care fellow at R. Adams Cali and Shock Trauma. Uh, representing the trauma surgery community, for better or worse, will be myself, Joe DeBose, attending surgeon at Shock Trauma. Uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. What a great pleasure. So today we're going to talk about stereotypes in our kind of our interdisciplinary relationships regarding trauma care. Now, stereotypes, uh, full disclosure here, are most commonly unfair caricatures of of people, right? Uh, They can be amusing if used uh, in certain contexts, but they can also be very ugly and dangerous. But sometimes, at least when it comes to professions, there's an element of truth, the reality in the caricatures. Uh, You know, accountants like numbers. Uh, Some plumbers have plumbers crack. Those are the kind of things (laughs) that, uh, that go along with that. So I'd like to take some time today to examine the kind of the perceived stereotypes of our specialties from both perspectives. And then I'd like to compare those realities of our fields as told from both sides. And we recognize that stereotypes typically propagate in the academic realm, but we've all spent some time there, right? We all trained in the academic realm. Most of us on the phone here today talk in that realm. And the listeners' environments may be different, but they've all experienced this to some degree. Scott kind of point, pointed that out and framed that very well for me. It's my hope, though, that by if we talk about this today, and for both of us talking and those listening, that all this will result in a little bit of better understanding of each side of our trauma team, and it just makes us better colleagues, better friends, and we do better for our patients. After all, if you can walk a mile in someone else's shoes or understand the stressors and issues facing a colleague, you better understand them and you do better. So I'm going to open the door, and we'll start by picking on the trauma surgeons first. So Lord knows we deserve it. Uh, Scott, I'm going to let you go first. As an emergency, you pick up your paintbrush here. You're at the amusement park. You're doing the caricatures for five bucks, you know, the classic draw that you've seen. And you've just had your trauma surgeon walk in the ER and you're painting that picture. Verbally tell me what, um, what stereo, give me the stereotypical trauma surgeon that you work with in the environment for all his ugly blemishes. Uh, and, and what creates the most angst out of working with that person for you? Yeah, sure. So in my mind, there's two stereotypes for trauma surgeons. And the first one is one that I actually get along with well. So when they live up to the stereotype, it's wonderful. And that stereotype is a badass cowboy. You know, kind of shooting from uh, the hip, and they uh, could handle pretty much any situation, so they don't have to spend all that much time considering it. They just deal with it as it comes. And they have seen so much, they have done so much that... Uh, it doesn't really matter. Nothing's going to phase them. They do not get upset or agitated. They are cracking jokes in the midst of a multi-casualty incident. These are the people I train with at Shock Trauma Center. They were living up to this stereotype. Maybe not perfectly, but that is my vision during training of what a trauma surgeon is. The other stereotype is a condescending, arrogant, totally controlling, 
and really difficult to deal with, uh, obsessive person that just makes my life a living hell. And, you know, that also is an, perhaps a, uh, an overarching stereotype, but, but when uh, folks start going towards that spectrum, that's where uh, I have a lot of trouble. Okay. Bill, you've, uh, what, you've lived in both worlds a little bit. What, what did Scott miss from the ER perspective? I don't really think that much. I, I think I agree that, you know, being at shock trauma, I'm used to seeing the former rather than the latter. But, you know, having trained other places and worked other places, you, you definitely see the, uh, the very difficult person to deal with and the person who doesn't appreciate what we might bring to the table. Okay. Well, so now as a counter to that, I'm going to look in the mirror, do a little self-reflection on behalf of my entire specialty and kind of analyze the stereotypes and, and at least provide my case for the consideration of why it's accurate and what are some of the things that contribute. I will say that if I had to think of a couple of points, I think the trauma, we often forget the stressors that uh, are, are affecting our other field. And if I had to remind my EM colleagues of stressors that affect our trauma surgeons, and in particular trauma surgery residents, who are often the greatest defenders, right? The surgery residents, that first wave of response down to the trauma bay. They're the least experienced, and, and they've been hammered from a culture perspective that they can't trust anyone, right? You don't trust anyone. Everyone else is stupid. Then we may not use that term stupid, but uh, I hope not. But um, we certainly, that is imbued to us as a surgical culture. Uh, and I wish we shifted kind of as an aside from a trust no one to a trust but verify and verify together right say hey are you sure did you check the chest x-ray you're you're pretty comfortable with that absolutely okay let's both look at it together kind of thing i will say residents we we create our own monsters in that regard from a training perspective i think as a uh the cultures are changing to be fair and sure and i think in the places i've been that's clear but those stressors and and those that emphasis on the residents to know every minor detail on the surgical side and let's be honest the culture of training is different with surgery residents bill you can speak to this better than anybody yes, right absolutely. so it we are still perhaps more malignant on the surgical side and less forgiving of our trainees we expect unrealistically some perfection every time sometimes i think the um if you talk about trauma surgeons too, I think most people get into trauma surgery or surgery in general to operate. And we have this tendency that's irrational to me to get really gruff about the non-op patients, right? And they're just as important. You can save just as many lives of patients that you never have to put scalpel to that we forget. And the other thing I will say that I wish the work hour restrictions have improved this to some degree, but there's still a lot of sleep deprivation and issues going on that create these behavioral monsters uh, sometimes because sleep and hunger certainly everybody's been hangry and been cranky after sleep and that we create this milieu where it's kind of not ideal. Um, let's turn the let's turn the spotlight now on the uh, the emergency medicine folks. So, Bill, you've lived in both worlds. So I'm gonna I have my own perspectives <laughs> on this. I'll interject here, but I'm gonna let you. What is the stereotypical? Get out your marking pen now. You're drawing a caricature of the classic as a surgeon when you were surgery as a walking in dealing with the classic academic realm emergency physician. What does that character look like? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about uh, ever since we had a conversation about this podcast. And I am guilty of both stereotypes in my career. I've been both and I've been under both hats. If I had to put the surgery hat back on, what I brought into my, or out of my surgical training, uh, viewing my ED colleagues 
was a few things. Um, the first one is there was always the perception that no one really had all the information and there's always a loss of information between my conversation with the ED folks and my assessment. And, you know, how many times have I heard, you know, I haven't seen this patient yet. I got this signed out. You know, the nurse practitioner told me about it. This is what I was told. I don't know anymore. That was so frustrating. And I can tell you as a surgery resident, I was notorious for being the resident that would call back to the ED and say, where's the patient? Thank you very much. And then I'd hang up the phone because the information that I got was always at odds with what I found, or at least so it seemed. Sure. So the other thing that I noticed is, and having been in the ED world, I can now understand this, and we'll get into this a little bit later, I think, is this perceived push to get the patients out of the ED, no matter what, as fast as possible, without regard to anything else going on. It's in service to the almighty disposition. And that was something that I always felt like was a problem taking care of my patients, not necessarily trauma patients, but just in general as a surgery resident, which informed my behavior when I went into the trauma room. So the other thing that I'll point out is uh, having now lived in the world of ED for a few years, uh, I can say that there is a consideration usually about what procedures need to go on in the ED, but there may not be as mature consideration, uh, I think as Joe pointed out, that some procedures may be better done elsewhere. They may be better done in the ICU. They may be better done in IR. I have an example from my last shift working up at a, at a, at a moonlighting gig, is we had a patient, everything was falling down around me in the ED. I called the ICU attending and said, hey, look, this guy needs to be intubated. He's COVID positive. We're getting killed down here. Can you help us out? He said, absolutely. Bring him up. We'll, we'll take care of it. No problem. That may not be the reaction of some people. And yeah. that's, that's one stereotype that I see. So that's how I would summarize the, the points that I see working both sides of the fence, as it were. Yeah, all those are fair. I think a lot of it is just the prism that you look through. Once you stop and think about, it's natural that you would not have all the information of patients that you have not completely worked up if you've just started your shift in 30 minutes. But on our the prism that the surgery resident, who is every day is a surgical tending, I tell that surgery resident, you will know everything about your patient. So the perception is they step into this area where it's natural that you haven't had time to go through all the patient's stuff, all the patients you've taken over, but you're trying to continue the throughput through the ER, that, um, that the surgical resident's perception is they, you don't know anything about these patients, right? And so you automatically lose IQ points for some reason without that consideration of the kind of the context. I will also say, I'll tell you, as a surgery attending and as a resident, uh, one thing that I perceive is um, it's going to the ER sometimes at various places, right? Shock trauma is very different, but I've worked at a lot of different places, LA County, UC Davis, uh, Miami, in my travels as a military surgeon. You walk into the ER, it's a wolf's den, and you do not belong, and this is their space, right? That is the perception that they get. You are in a foreign space, uh, and I don't know what we, I, I'd like to ask some questions to Scott, because I think he has some great thoughts on this about wh why that is and how that dynamic plays into things. But when you're in that foreign space and you're looking in the ER nurses and the ER docs are all kind of, you're getting tested a little bit. It's a wolf pack and they're circling. Um, I do kind of feel that a little bit. Uh, and on the procedures thing, I think surgeons are just as guilty. I think surgical residents are just as guilty of wanting to do all these procedures at the bedside unless in sterile conditions if they don't need it. Like chest tubes for a hemothorax that's a patient that's not, doesn't need that evacuated immediately. If you're going to the OR anyway, do it in the operating room. 
it's you really can't create a perfectly sterile environment with the expediency you need to for most trauma patients who have other procedures done and that need to have them done or so that's kind of where I look at it Scott take those uh, those characterizations and get provide some self-reflection or analysis are they accurate are they why are they not accurate yeah, they're pretty good. Uh, I stopped practicing emergency medicine maybe eight years ago. I just do full-time ED critical care. I have the luxury of knowing everything about my patient, you know, obsessively finding out their past medical history. And it's because I don't have to treat as many patients and I'm going to have them for 24 hours. But your average emergency physician is juggling 15 to 18 patients sometimes. And they, you know, Bill put his finger on it. They just want to get a disposition. And so much more of emergency medicine than surgery or trauma surgery is just based on gestalt. Or is this patient sick or not? If they're sick, do they need to come in or not? If they need to come in, what is the minimum I could do to get them out of there? Because there's another 30 patients in the waiting room. And so you're going to get these really unsatisfying answers from the perspective of a trauma surgeon. And the only reason I could say that is when I was a trauma fellow, I think I could really put myself in the shoes of most trauma surgeons, and it was immensely frustrating to me to deal with emergency medicine. But yet I had the understanding of why they were doing it. It wasn't because they were dumb. It wasn't because they were careless. It wasn't because they didn't want their patients to have the best possible care. It was because the mindset is diametrically opposed. Trauma surgery is usually going to have to be admitting this patient or making sure they don't need an admission. Uh, And they're going to spend all of their time on the one patient in front of them. Emergency medicine is, this is just one of a multiplicity of things they are juggling. And then the shift change is, you know, so adverse to the mindset of a trauma surgeon. They are working a 24-hour shift, which in actuality, as you two know, means they're going to be there 36 hours in the hospital. And so they are in it for the long haul. Emergency medicine as a shift gig, and there's really no other way to do it, means you're constantly going to be signing out. And you're not going to know as much as the person who took the primary history from the patient because they gave you five minutes versus the 15 they probably spent with that patient. And if you got the five minutes, even that's probably more than most situations. Yeah, you know, Scott, these so these stereotypes, the worst in both fields seems to always come out in the trauma bay of the emergency department, in my experience. What is it about, and you've touched on this a little bit, I'd like you to kind of give your perspective on it. What is it about that particular space that causes these to play out in that way? Yeah, you know, it's a few things. So first off, there is this, in academics at least, community is a whole different gig, and maybe we'll talk about that later, but in academic emergency medicine and trauma surgery, there is this unspoken disagreement about who's actually in charge of that room. And so the emergency medicine attending thinks it's them, it's their area, they're an emergency physician in an emergency department. The trauma surgeon clearly, um, you know, for better or for worse, believes that they are the trauma team leader and there is no ambiguity about that. And they might give lip service to it being a team run trauma, but in reality, in the mind of every trauma attending, is they are in charge of everything about a trauma patient. And then it filters down to the residents. And so this, like, ambiguity leads to so much conflict. Now, uh, the reason there is ambiguity in most places is because fixing it would really create a war uh, that is pretty much unwinnable. If there ambiguity disappeared and it's the trauma surgeon in charge of every single aspect of the trauma without any ambiguity, 
well, then emergency medicine is not going to participate anymore uh, in most places. And then you have situations where you have separate emergency departments for trauma and non-trauma. And you could go that direction, and there's probably no fights anymore, but most places are not willing to do it. Or you could create a shock trauma center where everyone works, regardless of your specialty, for one physician-in-chief and one leadership structure in their networks. But the way it's in most trauma centers, it's very difficult. Now, if you have people that are playing as a team and they're all working together in reality, not just in lip service, then it works out and you don't have these fights anymore. But uh, when that ambiguity is there, you have a, a real dearth of, of, of real understanding of who actually is running things, even to the level of who's running individual pieces, who runs their way, who's truly in control, who could over uh, arch someone else's judgment. Uh, that makes for complications. The other thing is, um, there's an ambiguity about who owns the space. And uh, a lot of times, if trauma surgery comes down to most emergency departments and treats the place like they own it, it's gonna lead to a lot of unspoken and sometimes spoken uh, animosity amongst the nurses and the physicians. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating me. A lot of it does center around procedures and those kind of things. I will say from the trauma surgeon's perspective, you know, my viewpoint, a lot of even going down to places that are not like shock trauma where we don't have kind of the classic ER running the team is that, uh, you know, our perspective is that patients come into us anyway. We need to be involved from the get go. So at least we know if there was a, ch- a problem with the airway, we were there. We saw what it was. There was a central line that didn't feel quite right. We know what that issue was. Um, but and the, and the residents, of course, in both fields, you're combining two groups of residents that are super aggressive and hungry for procedures. And now that it, we inherently look after our own trainees, and that creates some kind of issues in and of itself. Um, and it like it varies in different ways, and I've seen it go out uh, in several different ways. It's it's also uh, different in every country, every city, every state. I can tell you, you can talk about places. One that came to mind thinking about this was the group at San Diego who does a lot of the ECMO stuff in the ER, right? They don't have, uh, they partnered with surgeons that got along really well, and the cardiac surgeons were actually the ones that suggested to them, you know, you guys should really do ECMO down here and own it and be a part of it, and I got your back. And you look at kind of the... Can I comment on both of those things? Yeah. Say again? Yeah, so... You know, the, the place you're mentioning in San Diego is Sharp. And now the yep. interesting thing about Sharp is despite the fact that they have uh, some of the most advanced uh, technologies and uh, uh, offerings in the ED than you'll find anywhere, they're a community shop. And yep. I think you put your finger on it. If you go to a community shop, these problems don't exist. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. The other thing I'd like to say about procedures is when I've worked at centers where there's a clear delineation beforehand of procedures, meaning, uh, for instance, odd days are emergency medicine, even as surgery, all these fights disappear. Because then the surgeons on the odd days, when it's ED, are there to help. There's no, any time in your mind there's a feeling of, if only I assert myself more, I'll get more of the things I want, it's always gonna lead to fighting. As soon as that disappears, as soon as you know, well, it's Monday, it's the first of the month, that's an ED day, uh, I'm not going to be doing procedures today. They come down and their only mindset is, how do I make everything work for the procedures of the emergency docs? And on even days, they're setting up your table for the trauma surgeons. They're getting everything ready for you because they know no matter how much they assert, it's not their day. In places where it's ambiguous, that's where the fight starts. Yeah, I totally agree. Ambiguity creates issues. And, and you know, casually in that ambiguity that I often see is when someone's trying to, on either side, trying to be the person who runs the code 
or the trauma response and do the procedures, the minute you dive into a procedure, you lose the 5,000 foot view. I'm sorry, if I'm doing a femoral arterial line, I turn to my fellow and say, listen, I'm about to put my head in the sand and focus on this arterial line. I'm gonna try to keep tabs on things as they're going on, but you're running the resuscitation now. And that's our EM3 resident or our EM critical care uh, fellow who's doing that for me. And I think those synergies play out better when, when you understand that, when you have good communication, you have predefined roles, and uh, it's clearly really in the, the characters, at least, or academic phenomena. What else about the this, this civilian world is different that maybe deconflicts some of these issues? Scott? What, which, which part specifically you're asking about? Jim? Yeah, the civilian, what's different? We, these are, if this is an academic problem, why is the community so much more different? In oh, general. okay, you were asking civilian, but you meant academic versus community. Uh, sorry, I had a military switch that flipped my brain. you want to re that question, Joe, <laughs> so we can just edit that out? Uh, just keep going. I'll, I'll work it. Okay, yep, sounds good. So, yeah, why is community better? Well, in a community place, first of all, uh, everyone has more than enough work to occupy their time, and when they're not working, they don't want to be in the hospital anymore. And uh, in most cases, the emergency department is going to be seeing these patients up front, and then they're going to be calling in their trauma surgeon either from home or from upstairs. So the initial resuscitation, which is where I find most of these fights start, it's not even an issue. The trauma surgeons are only too happy to let the ED see these patients initially and then come down when called. Most of the time, they're doing acute care surgery cases in the hospital, and they might even be in the operating room. It's not even a choice for them to whether they're going to be there at time zero or not. So they are only too happy to have a collegial relationship, and there's no fighting about procedures. Everything instead is, uh, you know, hey, okay, I can help you out with this, or I can help you out with that. Do you want to come in, or do you want me to put this chest tube in? Because they, if they're had the option to not do something on either side, it means they're going to be making more money doing something else. So everything is, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. While it seems like an academic emergency medicine trauma surge, like it's a zero-sum game, and it's an entirely different uh, entirely different situation of instead of working for each other, we're now in each other's way in terms of what we want for the learning of our residents, for uh, the ability to feel like we own our own domain. Yeah, I totally agree. So I'm going to ask now, Scott, you and Bill both, uh, what are the stressors and challenges of the emergency medicine physician, the typical kind of academic emergency medicine physician that you wish more surgeons understood better? Scott, do you want me to go first and you mop up what I forget? Let's do it. You go, Bill. I've been been, uh, opening my mouth. (laughs) All right. So I I will tell you, moving from the uh, upstairs and surgery down to the ED, I realized a couple things pretty quickly. And we've kind of talked about these in some detail, but I wanted to go through a little bit more is while the flow of admissions when I was a surgery resident, the flow of admissions to my service was fairly standard, fairly slow. You get a few here, a few there. That's rarely the case in the emergency department. A busy ED, you can have 20, 30 patients show up in an hour. And I, I really think that is the genesis of the stereotype of I don't know the patient. So for example, you know, I'm running around with my hair on fire. I may not know the home meds for the 85-year-old femur fracture, but I can tell you what time the TPA went on the STEMI patient, what time the CT came back for the MCA stroke. You know, it's all about triage and it's all about 
moving people through to the disposition so that you can make room for the next person. Because what non-ED physicians don't really truly appreciate until you work down there is while the trauma patient or the hospitalist patient or whatever consultant patient you have has my attention in the moment, that doesn't mean that the search for the one critically ill patient in the waiting room of which there are 30, that doesn't mean that they're not still there and they're not still dying. You still have to find that needle in a haystack. And that's what a lot of what a lot of specialties don't appreciate about the ED. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Um, it, it's going to be tough uh, to, to combat the stereotypes because, unfortunately, in most cases, these stereotypes are true, but they're not a stereotype because of inadequacy amongst the EM docs. It's, it's an inadequacy, or maybe it's just the nature of the job, as Hal is saying. So you can't really combat these stereotypes. Uh, what it will come down to is... Uh, when you learn your particular trauma surgeon, then you, you need to adapt. I mean, for better or for worse, if they're the badass cowboys, then it's going to be easy because that is the mindset of most resus-minded EM docs too. But if you have an anal retentive control free trauma surgeon and you look on the schedule, then unfortunately you have to adapt and you probably should, before you get on the phone to consult, uh, know more than you might when you're consulting your buddy in the NICU who is gonna walk you through it during the consult and get all the information in a really uh, easier fashion, you know? And, and so you wind up doing that. Um, but yeah, most of the stereotypes that we've discussed are true stereotypes. Now, there is one stereotype that hasn't been mentioned yet. Um, and it generally is amongst the older trauma surgeons' perception of emergency medicine. And when EM was a fledging profession, uh, the people that couldn't get a job anywhere else were the ones working in the emergency department. And, and even after that phase, they were still, they were gastroenterologists, they were dermatologists or psychiatrists who decided to make EM their second profession. And that was the next wave. And then you had people who at the very nascent stages of what emergency residency should be, you know, 20, 30 years ago. EM's different now. EM is, if not number one, then amongst the top two most desirable profession in medicine. Uh, we get only the absolutely most brilliant people in any emergency medicine residency. I mean, just absolutely astoundingly smart, but there is a perception amongst the older trauma surgeons, probably built on true facts 40 years ago, that EM docs are dumb and inadequate, and it's a really just a, a profession for people that can't handle real professions like internal medicine or surgery, and that stereotype's gotta go away. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the field has changed dramatically. And, you know, it's, it's 2020. People make lifestyle choices that are, regardless of how smart or gifted you are, it's a lifestyle choice to some degree, and that's fair and that's fine. And you can make a tremendous impact in both doing 12-hour shifts in the ER or doing silly 36-hour shifts. They both have a role. Um, I would say, if I had to say what would I want EM docs to understand, I would say that, um, you know, one of the things people, the, 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 stereo, the bad stereotype you talked about, to me, was just really described the, the trauma surgeon or the surgeon who doesn't have that comfort level yet, right? The old cowboy has seen uh, a lot. Uh, he's been around the block. Uh, maybe he's deployed downrange several times and see mass casualty situations multiple times, and his stress level's a little different. I think writing off that person that is less uncertain of themselves and that manifests in 
untoward ways uh, is a mistake because you got to make them better. And the the challenge in the art is finding a way to partner with them, to belly up with them, to create a comfort level from a team perspective that makes them feel better, uh, and you grow them. And I think that that's the real challenge. That's a frustration. Old trauma surgeons look at younger trauma surgeons when they come down and help each other out, and then we criticize each other, right, in the hallway. So what the heck were they doing? They, this patient clearly needed to go to the operating room and go to the operating room now, and they didn't push hard enough or needed a chest tube now. They didn't push hard enough. That comes with experience. And you you don't buy you can't go to the Walmart and buy experience you got to live it and and experience is best learned with good mentorship and that mentorship can occur not just from trauma surgeons but from EM docs I've learned more from EM docs and ICU nurses uh, and medical intensivists probably than I ever have from trauma surgeons that pertains to that care outside the operating room and so that those are the things I would think about and also the stressors at 36 hours I mean I hope our culture is changing as a surgical community as well but the people your first wave of responders that come down the ER and often the most problematic are the most stressed out the tiredest and have the least power to make decisions and feel wedged between a lot of different factors surgery residency is a challenging thing to do not EM is as well but surgery residency is a prolonged 10 round fight some shifts and so that's what you're the, the kind of emotional pressure cooker that you got people in when they're dealing with that and it and a simple thing I do you know to in any environment if you start any conversation with recognizing the challenges of other people I walk down the ER and say wow it looks busy down here you got a lot of patients you guys have a lot going on what can I do to help same thing if you see the surgery resident coming in who's unshaven unkempt and smells like that in shower for two days you know at least recognize that and so that they say yep okay this person gets where I'm at emotionally uh, they're an ally not an enemy and instead of walking in and having the wolves start circling immediately staring at you thinking about how juicy you look <laughs> so that's kind of what I what I, what I would do. So what could EM physici- so, physicians... Can I, can I push back on one thing you said? Fire away. Okay. So you, you had mentioned that, you know, maybe the, the bad stereotype uh, comes from just lack of experience, and once they get there, it'll change. And maybe, sometimes. But I, that's not what I've seen for the most part. What I've seen is it comes from what you were exposed to during your trauma surgery training, and, and probably to some extent during your surgical residency. And because everyone we, we put out of shock trauma, with a handful of exceptions, has the attitude that I look at as the positive stereotype. And that's because you are exposed to people living that positive stereotype. And you are beaten down if you start exhibiting those anal retentive traits. And what was fostered during our training, and, and Bill, you disagree if, uh, if you think different, but uh, we were amazingly hard on each other for mistakes made, but in a way that did not leave us in this anal retentive obsessive control state. You were uh, forced to recognize all your own mistakes and then were immediately forgiven and understood that mistakes are part of trauma surgery and a necessary part of the game. And so what you built is these people who felt they could handle everything that would walk in in confidence. And if you didn't have the sense of humor, if you didn't, if you weren't capable of uh, having the attitude that I am putting in that positive stereotype, it was quickly beaten into you. Bill, you tell me if I'm wrong. No, not wrong at all. That's hit the nail right on the head. Yeah, no, I actually agree with you on that point. I think that when I'm talking about the impact of kind of not giving up on somebody, I'm really talking about the residents and the fellow training level because there's a lot of lessons you learn. If you didn't learn them by the time we come out of trauma fellowship, you're probably going to have a hard time. Yeah, there's no question there. Yep, yep. What, uh, what, what could EM physicians do to change the perception of their stereotype? Give us some quick, you're talking to EM docs out there about how to better relate to trauma surgery. What advice would you give them? 
I'll defer to my much more experienced colleague. <laughs> Scott? Yeah. So, uh, we, in general, uh, in emergency medicine, we're an evidence-based specialty. But for whatever reason, and it's perhaps that it, it's just tougher to have this information penetrate outside the surgery-specific journals. But if you read Journal of Trauma every month, you're going to be, like, 50-fold better at actually interacting with the trauma surgeons because that is the main type of information. And, you know, you go into other areas uh, and there might be six, seven journals, but J-Trauma is basically the one. And if you're familiar and have conversations that sound like you actually care about this stuff, all of a sudden they're like, oh, this resident, this EM resident, yeah, he's, he's pretty smart. He actually uh, read the same stuff I do. And that breeds collegiality. And if you're just going to go and, and not bother showing any effort to learn about that specific specialty, uh, then, you know, you're not going to get that, that same degree of, of camaraderie that comes from talking about the same information. Yeah, if I had to give EM folks uh, the kind of things that we look at, that if you really want to speak the common vernacular of what evidence-based stuff is these days for various trauma entities, the East Clinical Practice Guidelines and the Western Trauma does these uh, critical decisions, and it has it's just flowgrams and pathways because we're knuckle-dragging trauma surgeons, and that's how we think. But if you have some basic familiarity with those, boy, you'll be on the same page a lot of times, and you'll probably raise some eyebrows if you say, well, according to the East Clinical Practice Guidelines, um, that will um, certainly, uh, yeah. It's, it's challenging. Now, the EM literature is a little more robust and, and broader spectrum, right? So that's a challenge for me to speak the language. And thank God I only have to go down and talk about trauma patients when I go into your ER. Because if you want talking about STEMIs and stuff like that, brother, you're talking to perhaps to the wrong guy. And that's coming from an intensivist who is board certified in the management of such things. Um, Scott, I'm yeah, ask- I want to talk about one more stereotype that's positive, if I could, because I think yeah. it's something that if the trauma surgeons aren't doing, they can really start doing. Yeah. Uh, but I, the ones I've dealt with usually have done this. And uh, if I have a patient who is crashing with a surgical issue and uh, one of the other surgical services is not coming through, they are either uh, don't want to take that patient to the operating room because uh, they, they have a high suspicion they might die or they're just feeling uncomfortable or, or I just feel in any way that they are just not responding in the way that my judgment says should be. Uh, when I call the trauma surgeon and say, could you help out, maybe just talk to your buddy, um, they are the people I go to. Because when I think about who is capable of taking a really sick patient to the operating room, or at least conceptualizing with me, uh, whether I'm right or wrong, I reach out to my trauma surgery buddies because they share the same mindset of if I have a sick and dying patient, I'd rather they be doing it on the table if they have a surgical issue rather than I'd rather them die in their ICU bed so I don't get the mortality. Uh, have you guys found that to be the case? Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, this whole change in trauma surgery, this is a whole other podcast to kind of do better incorporate acute care surgery. Uh, into the model to which we deal with the sick surgical patients as well is a kind of a step in that recognition of that, right? As, as trauma volume, as surgical volume has gone down across the board for most things, people are a lot yes, used to dealing with sick people in the general surgery world, perhaps the older generation. Uh, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm also stereotyped. You can't talk about one stereotype with somehow flowing into another, mm-hmm. but um, I do think that uh, I, I think that's kind of the nature. Trauma surgeons, we're used to getting what we get, right? Okay, it's a problem. I didn't make it, but we gotta we gotta fix uh, you know solve it. General surgeons sometimes, at least the general surgeons who like to take who take trauma call, are a couple of things that frustrate me about sometimes is they don't you know they're used they're, they're not used or they've lost. They, at one point they were probably pretty good, but when you just do kind of elective general surgery, you lose that skill set. That's why fewer fewer of them are taking trauma call. 
Another frustration I have that I will ally with our EM colleagues with, shock trauma, we get all these calls for uh, patients um, that have uh, a variety of surgical issues in the acute care surgical realm. And it, it amazes me. This, this is where the partnership between the EM and the uh, surgeon on the outside facility kind of goes against them, in ter- as, as I view it, right? So that you're an ER doc at a community hospital, you've got a patient with a soft tissue infection. Right, so you call and uh, your surgeon, you get a CT scan, it looks concerning, it's not a smoking gun, and then you call the surgeon who's taking call, getting paid probably pretty well to take night call at outside hospital. And then I asked my ER colleague when they called to see this, they said, you know, my surgeon says I can't handle it here. I said, well, did your surgeon even come see the patient? Right, and the ER docs say no, they didn't. Uh, and I get why they do business with that. If I'm a general community surgeon, if I got out of bed for everything that was cut and dried, a, a definitive diagnosis of acute appendicitis on CT scan, I trust my ER colleague there locally to make that call. But there's something surgeons got to get out of bed and go check things are, and that's the frustration I see in the surgeon who takes just a little bit of surgical call. They don't go kind of, and they're going to call the trauma surgeon or refer it out. Uh, but that's again a soapbox, probably unrelated to what we're dealing with. I was going to add one, one thing. I, I hear you, though. That's absolutely true. One, one thing I was going to add, having most recently worked in a community ED, I dealt with this every single day, is I had locum surgeons come in, and they would not see the patient. They would tell me this is not a surgical problem, or it's a surgical problem that we can't handle because the patient has a couple med- medical comorbidities. My philosophy on that was it's much easier for me to call my critical care trained, surgical critical care trained colleagues down the road yeah. at ECU and have a conversation with them intensivist to intensivist and say, this is what I've got. I think the patient would be best served under your care. Yeah, it's, it's clear to me when a patient has issues that exceed the capability of the, the provider and the system, sometimes it's not the provider, sometimes it's just the system and that's fair. They need to come to a higher level of care. But you can't say, I can't handle something surgically without it at least coming looking at it. Right. They haven't seen the CT scan. They haven't. Anyway, oh, this is another podcast, Scott. We'll do that one later. Um, I'm going to ask, it, I'm going to uh, step back a little bit. Now, you made a comment. We kind of had some discussions before this. And I know I'm, I don't want to take it out of context, but I think it's an interesting viewpoint. You mentioned something about you don't think your surgical resident, that surgical residents really benefit from being involved in ER resuscitations that that much. Is that taking words out of your mouth or what? Give us some background on what you meant by that. Yeah. So when you think like it seems the most natural thing in the world in the United States that, of course, if there's a profession that needs to learn about trauma resuscitation, it's the surgical residents, right? Uh, it just makes sense. I mean, trauma surgery is surgery. Um, but then when you really break it down, surgical residents need to learn how to figure out which patients need to go to the operating room. They need to figure out which patients need to come into the hospital or not. But the actual bread and butter aspects of trauma resuscitation, those, those pieces, uh, they're never going to do unless they decide to go into trauma surgery, in which case uh, they will have already self-identified by the latter port of their st- latter stages and probably gravitate towards that with electives or particular interests and then do a fellowship. Or if they're going to go into a non trauma surgical specialty, not even a gen surge where they might be taking trauma calls, they're never going to touch trauma again in their careers. Or if they are in one of those places where they're taking calls, even though they didn't do a trauma fellowship, they're not going to be there during the first 15 minutes of that trauma. So basically, what all these fights are about with the surgical residents fighting with the EM residents, uh, because everyone needs to take their piece of this zero-sum game, it really doesn't make any sense. I mean, emergency medicine, no matter what kind of 
special uh, practice patterns you go into will need to know how to do trauma resuscitation. Without a doubt, they are in academics, community, big, small, going to have to master trauma resuscitation. Surgical residents will pretty much never need it unless they're going to do a trauma fellowship. Yeah, I'll return sort of on that one. I have a little different perspective per se, and I think it has less to do with the, per se, yes, sure, a bunch of our surgeons go into laparoscopic surgery, they go into oncologic stuff, they go into a variety of different things, so do they benefit that much from trauma? And I will tell you that what they the true benefit for those folks is the uh, building instincts and reflexes that serve them well when they have, we're the only field, or not the only field, but one of the major fields, we do things to patients that create problems. We cause bleeding, and that bleeding can come back to bite us in the ward. It can bite us in an open ICU model. It can bite us in a variety of different places. And the only way, place, the best place, in my opinion, to teach somebody how to recognize and manage initial shock is after trauma. And I think if you build reflexes in that environment, they will benefit patients down the road tremendously in a variety of different settings. So that, um, and that's the U.S. model. There are other models in the U.K., for example. You don't see surgeons go into the ICU, even the ICU, right? You get a sick patient who's hypotensive, they don't call the surgeon. As, they may call them as an afterthought, but they call the anesthesiologist or the intensivist. And every nation is different. Every yep. system is different. I think from the American model, that was the reason why we, um, recognizing that one trauma a bigger burden in the U.S. than most places, uh, and so we needed to have more people kind of have that skill set. But I think the real nuts and bolts truth on the ground is that for those people who don't go into trauma or acute care surgery practices, that they really learn reflexes that benefit other patients that either they created or they come across that are in, in sepsis or need resuscitation to recognize shock management and priorities, right? The priorities of ATLS, we can argue about the how to do them and in what order and are they right or wrong, but they teach you the basic priorities in some contexts that you can apply in a lot of different settings. That's my take on it. Yeah. So uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and there's a lot more we could potentially cover. I want to thank you guys, but we do cover uh, in this podcast the tail end is uh, our random questions. This is my favorite part because I get to see how people's brains work that I know and respect. So with your permission, guys, I would like you to uh, respond to a few questions, and I'll start with you, Scott, if that's okay. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the first one's a little goofy. They always are. Uh, clowns. Are clowns creepy or are they funny? What's the real answer? <laughs> it, they are indisputably creepy. I mean, they are designed to be creepy. Uh, clowns are scary. They have uh, the inability for you to tell from their facial expressions what they're actually feeling. And they are built to get into all your psychological crevices and mess with your mind. So definitely creepy. Yeah, I put them in the category of squirrels and cats. If I can't tell you what you're thinking, I'm always a little concerned. Yeah. Yep. What do you think, Bill? Definitely creepy. Definitely creepy. Definitely creepy. All right, next question. I'll start with Bill this time. What's the single worst task you have to do as an EM physician? The, the, the one mm. small minutia of your job that you dislike the most? Oh, man. Dealing with the patient who doesn't have a qualifying stay in the hospital but still needs to stay for some social reason or some other reason that I have to convince someone to admit them. That drives me insane, trying to do the right thing for the patient in the current current model. Just consult, consultant roulette, trying to it, figure out who to... Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine that'd be frustrating. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the glib answer is manual disinfection, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
real one is having to uh, resuscitate a patient, I clearly think, is inappropriate care. The 95-year-old demented nursing home patient, based on the family demanding a resuscitation, despite it going against every professional ethic and feeling I have. Yeah, those are ethics is always, particularly in your environment, challenging. It's challenging in trauma in general. I will say from the trauma surgeon, charting. Easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think most surgeons get in it to operate. We love, I love the, 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 the adrenaline-inducing situation, and I love being in that fight with other people that I look around the table with and I like working on a patient with. But the, the charting afterwards, uh, especially in the era of the electronic medical record, is um, and finding the information you need. I miss the old surgeon's notes where you had one paragraph notes, right? You guys were lived, grew up in some of this era, yeah. right? Jim O'Connor leaves a note, yeah. chest tube, state of water seal, get chest x-ray tomorrow. I could figure that out. Now i got to <laughs> scroll through six pages to get to what he wants. Um, so I'm always fascinated by kind of what music says about who people are, or, or, and I'm always surprised, actually, by the music choices. So, Scott, if you're around the house, you're around the house today. The plumber's working on your toilet right now. What are you listening to around the house when he leaves? Yeah, so I, I've gone back to my roots. That's what uh, Disaster Studios, so classic rock. Uh, Stones are playing right now, painted black. Fair enough. Classic rock, man. What about you, Bill? So I've actually been listening to a band from uh, Asheville, North Carolina called Mandolin Orange. I love Mandolin Orange, yeah. actually. I'm very eclectic. I literally have uh, different strokes for different folks. I like Django Reinhardt and 1930s jazz. I like a little bit of classical. Classic rock is great. I grew up in South Texas, so redneck country, old 1930s country, all of it, man. It's crazy. Um, Scott, if you could do it all over again and you couldn't be an emergency medicine physician or an intensivist, what would you choose as a specialty or would you get out of medicine entirely? Yeah, I mean, I would have been happy as a chef. That's what I thought I was going to do uh, when I was first going to college or uh, a, a carpenter. I, I basically don't care. As long as the gig allows me to keep iteratively finding new ways to do things better and better and better, uh, I would be happy. So it doesn't really matter. You'd be an innovative chef or an innovative carpenter. Got it. Yep. Bill, what about you? Yeah, great. Well, I think uh, in the days of uh, COVID, I would pick any specialty that was non-essential. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, very appropriate. Yeah. Well, great. Yep. I think I'd be a forest ranger. We spend too much time indoors. Oh, I never see. I would love to have a job that is just outside all the time, walking around in nature. To be honest with you. Yeah. Well, guys, listen. This has been a blast. I love these debates, and I think that every time that we have these kind of discussions, we understand each other better, and we work better together. Uh, and it really is a trauma is a team sport, uh, up and down. Anybody who says otherwise is, in my mind, a fool. And we all take turns uh, being in charge at various times, and we all have to work together uh, as co-leaders in optimal care for trauma patients. So, thanks, guys. I really do appreciate you joining me today. Super fun, and uh, you know, I know Joe DeBose, and I know which of the two stereotypes he fits into. So, Joe, you are welcome to visit my trauma day any day. So you can show them what the bad stereotype looks like. <laughs> I know your I know your tricks, Weingart. <laughs> well, listen, everybody, this has been another episode of the Trauma Podcast. Be sure to check out our other offerings wherever you consume podcasts. And again, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for topics, you can always email us at the trauma podcast at yahoo.com. Again, that's all one word, lowercase, the trauma podcast at yahoo.com. Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.